Wake up, wake up, wake up. You talking to me? What we've got here is failure to communicate. Hi, de ho, all you girls, boys, and non-binaries out there. This is your boy Ron Dawson coming at you with another edition of your favorite filmmaking podcast that breaks all the rules, Crossing the 180, part of the Art of the Frame podcast network by Film Tools and Pro Video Coalition. Every other week, I have engaging and informative conversations about culture and craft with artists, entrepreneurs, and filmmakers doing amazing work in the world of film and television. And this week, I have an old colleague and friend by the name of Salima Karoma. I first met Salima a few years back, I want to say like 2016 or so, when I interviewed her about the making of her documentary, Bad Rap, which followed the aspiring careers of four Asian rappers, one of which was uh, Aquafina, uh, years before she became the global phenom that she is today. And Salima was interesting because she's a black woman who at the time was running an extremely popular K-pop site called The One Shots. And that led her to doing this film school thesis uh, documentary about these four Asian rappers. Well, eventually it got produced. Uh, it was on Netflix for a few years. And over the years, I've stayed in touch. And uh, I recently had her as a guest on my other podcast, Dungeons and Drags, where I had her chime in on our episode for Squid Game. And since then, Salima has kept very busy, like she now has agent representation by WME. She has a manager. Uh, and last year, she came out with a documentary called Dreamland, The Burning of uh, Black Wall Street for CNN. And it's about the, well, about the burning of Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma uh, in 1921. And just how horrible that was. And so she made a documentary about that. And I wanted to have her on just to kind of talk about uh, sort of like how her career has progressed, uh, what she does, and how she uh, manages her career as a documentary filmmaker. And I think you'll find this uh, very insightful. And if you are in the documentary world, this is something that you're definitely going to want to save and listen to and take notes on. Now, it just so happens that the timing of this episode is perfect for Black History Month. But it is not specifically for Black History Month. Uh, I personally think every month can be Black History Month. But uh, since it is coming at a perfect time, if you want to consider this your Black History Month <laughs> quota for podcast listening, uh, be my guest. But uh, here is my interview with Salima Karoma, documentary filmmaker extraordinaire, and uh, the brains behind the CNN documentary, Dreamland, The Burning of Black Wall Street. See you on the other side. You know, one of the things, one of the questions I'd like to start off with the show is, you know, what's your earliest movie memory? And is that necessarily the first movie you saw? It might be. But, like, the first memory you have with regards to watching a movie that holds some meaning for you, what's, like, the first one that comes to mind? Oh, that's an easy one. Oh, yeah? The movie is The Little Mermaid. Which came out in 89. Yes, um, the reason why I remember that movie so much, when I was uh, young, when I was two years old, I moved to oh, Germany. Geez. Oh, I knew I was going to feel old on this episode. Ah! <laughs> 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 Go ahead. 
so uh, when I was two, I moved to Germany with mm-hmm. my grandfather and my grandfather, my aunts and uncles, uh, my mom, my aunts and uncles, they were like, you know, 10, 12, 15. Yeah. And I was the baby. And I would watch The Little Mermaid all the time. I loved that film. Yeah, yeah. And when they wanted to watch something on the one TV that they had in this nice living room, I would come and I would demand The Little Mermaid be played and they would have to play it because I was the spoiled child. What did you like about that uh, movie? What was it about? I loved I loved the soundtrack. I loved the, I remember loving the music. Mm-hmm. I remember being able to recite it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I think it was the music, mm-hmm. to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, and even when I go back home now, this what, 30 years later, when I go see my family, they all have the, the soundtrack. They all have mm-hmm. the, air, the, the sound. So that's what I remember is the sounds of, of it. Yeah, yeah. Did you, I don't know if you read up on, you know, the new live action version that they're making. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with that story? Of course, yeah. Um, and all the hoopla that happened when Halle ba- Bailey was cast to be. Yeah. For, for for my older audience who may not know, <laughs> Haley Bailey is a part of a singing duo, she and her sister, and she's a black woman. And I guess she's in her, I mean, I would definitely say she's Gen Z or, or mm-hmm. late millennial maybe, but she's a black woman. And oh my gosh, the uproar that happened <laughs> making Ariel black mm-hmm. was as if mermaids quote unquote have have Listen, a color or a race right i have a controversial opinion on it i don't even know if it's controversial i don't know i don't like the disney remakes i don't like the reboots and the remakes uh-huh. i don't like them yeah i think when people said oh they should there was like a time you know a few years ago when everyone was like oh they should do a remake and they should do a re- reboot but then all the streaming platforms came out with like Disney Plus came out. Yeah. And then I started watching uh, the stuff on Disney Plus and I'm like, you know what? That satisfies that thing mm-hmm. that made me want the reboot. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And so I am already not into the reboot culture. Yeah. One. Yeah. I don't think that the Disney live action remakes have been good. Yeah. I think I'm with you in there. What? I don't think this was Disney, but one remake of a property that Disney has covered that I actually liked was um it was the Cinderella story but the, the one that Drew Barrymore was in Ever After Ever After that oh. was cool I don't think that was a Disney movie though I don't remember if it was or not I don't think it was That was a, that's a great it wasn't a remake it was a what do they call it a, a re like a retelling yeah. Retelling, you yeah. know. I mean, it, it definitely was the Cinderella story, but you know, told in a different way. But yeah, it wasn't technically a reboot. But when I think about something that, for a lot of us, we connect as a Disney animated, you know, the original Cinderella, that was one that I think really did well. But yeah, I agree with you. Like, I didn't see The Lion King. I know, I'm sure. Not that Beyonce fans even listen to the show, but <laughs> I, I didn't see The Lion King. Although I'm a huge Donald Glover fan, and I know he he did the voice of, uh, I guess, grown Simba. Uh, I didn't see that. I started watching, I guess this wasn't a reboot. This was sort of like a prequel to, you know, Cruella. Um, oh. 
I, I, see that one. I watched part of that. It didn't really capture me enough to want to finish it. There was the Jungle Book, I remember. I saw that. That was not good. I didn't like it. There was Mulan, which I haven't seen. Yeah. It's, right? Yeah, kind of fell so flat. So it's just like all these eh, kind of films. I just... Yeah. So already, it's such a special movie, The Little Mermaid, for me. I don't know that I need to, to yeah. see the less superior uh, yeah. level. Is there a song that stands out for you from that? Obviously, part of your world, yes. But for me, I actually love the very first song that you hear, uh-huh. which is um, the the white men on the sailing boat <laughs> singing like a, a ditty. <laughs> I don't even remember what that song is. Like, I don't... It's, it's like a... a I have to hear it. I have to hear it so I get it. But it's just like a oh hum hum and a oh hum hum. Like I like that. Yes. Stuff, That's you know? so funny. That's so funny. Um, <laughs> so you know, transitioning from that, what was it that got you into filmmaking in the first place? Like, what made you want to learn and study film? Um, I think it was editing. When I was young, I was like eleven or twelve. I mm-hmm. would just download from LimeWire or Kazaa mm-hmm. a bunch of um music and then i would put them under like i'd download uh like buffy episodes or uh-huh. shows that i used to really like right and then it would have a theme uh for what the video was going to be put a music put a piece of music under it like a song right i just edit and i used to like to edit i love editing mm-hmm. i my school happened to have when i was really young and middle school happened to have like a broadcast you know a morning show that right. I learned how to, you know, do stuff. I didn't actually even realize how important that was to m- me learning filmmaking. Yeah, yeah. And so I guess I just like to edit. Mm-hmm. And then from there, I I did journalism. I wanted to be a, in, in college, I wanted to be a sports broadcaster. So I'd oh, go yeah. to all the sports games and I'd interview <laughs> right. all the athletes, you know. Um, and then I was an entertainment reporter, you know, going to all the the red carpets for, right. for Daily Bruin television at UCLA, you know. Right. And, you know, talking to all the little stars gathering up this reel, thinking that yeah. that's what I wanted to do. And then later learning that I liked telling human stories mm-hmm. um, that were kind of weird. Um, so that was filmmaking, I guess, was mm-hmm. you know, and and I can't I, I was learning during a time when like video cameras were changing so fast and, and quick and you could just like experiment and just throw stuff at the wall and see right. what happens. Right. So, yeah, that's what I like is that creative process. I would love to learn how to make like feature narrative films. Mm. Uh, I make documentaries. Right. Was there like during that time, like were there any documentaries that stood out for you that you had seen that really inspired you? Mm. My favorite documentary was uh, is called uh, Enron Smartest Guys in the Room. Uh, I've seen that. I saw, I saw when it came out. That was good. Yeah. I was like really. Was that a Gibney? Way. Like Michael Gibney? Film? Alex and Alex Gibney film. Alex Gibney. Alex Gibney. Yes, right, right. yes. He's done uh, a bunch of stuff and some really good, some really not. But right, right. Um, so uh, Enron's smartest guys in the room is about pretty much Enron, this company who uh, they, you know, fraud, 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 defrauded people in America, and uh, you know, it was the first fraud doc that I've seen, and mm-hmm. I love to this day. Those are my favorite kinds of docs. Yeah. Actually, I actually saw Alex Gibney talk about Enron, uh, about mm-hmm. the film. And he said, uh, Enron is about this company that defrauded Americans. But when I think about it, it's a story about a heist, a story about oh. these guys trying to pull off a heist. Interesting. That's what it is. Yeah. And so when I think about my films, I do think about that, like 
what is the universal takeaway or what is the feeling? Mm -hmm. Bad Rap was a film that I made about Asian rappers, right? We're going to get to that. Yeah. It was like, okay. Oh yeah. Bad Rap, film about Asian rappers. Uh, But actually Bad Rap is a film about uh, kids wanting to belong, Mm -hmm. crying out to belong. Right. Um, So I just had to find the thing uh, that people relate to. Yeah. That, that, I'm learning. I like that you made that distinction. And it kind of reminds me of like, I'm a huge science fiction and sci-fi fan. And like, to me, the best types of sci-fi are the ones that aren't about the thing. They're about something else. And sci-fi is just the backdrop for doing that thing. And you think about, you know, some of the best ones out there. Um, and so, you know, this idea of sometimes you can even use it as a way of like bending a genre where you, take one genre and you use it to tell a story that most, maybe most films in that genre don't tell. Right. And so like the idea of Enron being a heist film as opposed to a documentary, you know what I mean? And that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. I I like that. I like that take on it. I do definitely want to get to, you know, the films you made, like including bad rap, but since we're talking about types of documentaries and types of films, you know, over the years we've seen, I think an evolution of the doc, like different ways of telling documentary stories. I mean, now they even have documentaries that are animated features. You have documentaries, obviously, where you have characters playing real life people. It's, it's almost, it's documentary, but it's almost narrative in terms of how they do it. Are you a fan of this evolution of the documentary format or are you more like you know i love the the b-roll mixed with the talking head mm. i feel bo- two ways mm. right uh, one is that documentary right now is like having this quote-unquote golden age which mm-hmm. is also like tied to the fact that like they want like the companies are putting money and money into it trying to profit from it right so like right. if you want to call that a golden age you know you call you know call yeah. it what you want um but i think that uh it, it, right now people are more willing want to and are looking for good documentaries entertaining documentaries right like mm-hmm. for right um that also means you it's harder to get things like a hoop dreams it's harder mm. to get things like um mm-hmm. Paris is burning, which mm-hmm. like people spent years for mm-hmm. you. Know, and these are some of the best documentaries you can't touch. Yeah. You can't touch them, right? They will live. Meanwhile, will Firefest live? Right. It was very entertaining. Actually, I probably, you know, it has its place. Yeah. But like, well, some of these other things, you know, these things that are being churned out. Right, right. Well, they live for a very long time. I'm not sure. But then again, uh, how many documentaries came out uh, when Hoop Dreams came out, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that people saw and revered, right? Um, maybe a couple. I, I don't know that I would even have a place or spot. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. would I be able to have the resources? Would they give me a young black woman the resources right. to spend three years telling a story about, well, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I, so I feel two ways right. about that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's funny because, you know, the documentary process can be a long and drawn out one. I mean, think about Who Dreams. I mean, they followed those boys at least three years, if not more. I kind of feel like longer. Maybe it was like eight, ten years or something yeah, like that. Yeah, it's like, like something, a generation, you know. Yeah, something crazy like that. Because, you know, they went from high school to college or whatever. And that's one of those stories that's kind of discovered. And it's not like you know ahead of time that they're going to become who they become. It's like you're rolling the dice and that I'm you're going to you- have something. When I go into these pitch meetings, I swear they want you to have the entire story figured out. And sometimes yeah. I'm just like, 
I don't know that that's part of the documentary, <laughs> right. the documentary, right? But they want you to have the story already figured out for, right. for them to put money into it. And I think, yeah. I wonder how limiting that is for, for people, right? Like, for example, I have one that I want to do that I'm thinking about having like some self self cameras and having like um, mm-hmm. handheld cameras showing us on the journey as we find the truth. When I go into a pitch meeting, if I say, I don't, I think we're going to do this thing. I cannot play with that. I can't right. experiment with that. And so I sort of go with something that's more sanitized and safe. Right. Yeah. That's, right. That's Selena, we, we, we want you to go to uh, a venture capital firm, pick a company and make a documentary about someone who becomes a billionaire. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Let me get my crystal ball <laughs> and figure out who's going to make it. You're, you, you talk about pitch meeting how what is your process like like who are these people you're pitching to how do you get in these rooms is it a standard type of thing how how are you able to get to the point where you can even have a pitch meeting for a documentary i have uh management i have agents okay Uh, my agency is wme oh nice so um when i made bad rap and then i made dreamland Mm -hmm. um I am now on a registrar of, uh, you know, people no, have now seen me mm-hmm. uh, and they want to get in contact with me to do whatever project. Right. Uh, and a lot of times, uh, m- most of the times now, people are pitching to me. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, they're saying we have this project. Right. Um, and then I see if I'm right for it. Yeah. Or if I have a project, I send it to my agent. My agent sends it to their contacts and then there's okay so and so so and so so and so wants to talk with you vimeo um uh, uh netflix and hulu want to talk with you and they want to hear this pitch yeah right? great um and sometimes these people have heard about you from a project that you did before and they just want to get a general meeting with you it's called a general yeah um and the general is just you sit and you you know you learn about each other and then uh most of the time for me generals were me saying, hey, this is what I'm doing, and them seeming interested, and then me never hearing from them ever again. Right. <laughs> right. And then I actually, and then I do a project, it gets big, and then those people I did generals with would be like, hey, I remember you. Would mm-hmm. you like to, like, sit down again? Right. Right. That's, that's what it is. Um, when I am pitching a story that I want to, I get into the rooms through my agents. Mm-hmm. I schedule something, let's say, uh, with uh, Netflix or something, right. um, and they have uh, their content developers of whatever. Maybe it's documentary or maybe TV shows or maybe mm-hmm. it's podcasts. And I just pitch the idea. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's a cold room, which is they don't know you. They are skeptical. And sometimes right. it's a warm room, which is they've heard of you. They right. want to work with you. They're open. Right. right. Um, and for me... The easiest things to pitch are the things that I care a lot about. Dreamland, the burning of Black Wall Street was a story about Black Wall Street that I cared about. And I saw that I had such a clear vision and I had so a few key words that I knew to throw in there. Black Gatsby, um, you know, uh, 1920s booming, you know, those kinds of things. And then I would just see the folks and a lot of times it's white folks. They're just like, oh, wow. Yes. (laughs) Keep going, you right. know. Yeah. And those, you know, you you'd think pitches are, and some maybe are, are very logistical. Like, here's what we want to do, and some mm-hmm. of it is. But I think for me, the best ones, the ones that I could feel that I got them, is when I'm just like, uh, it, it, the emotion is there, the mm-hmm. vibe is there, and I'm just coming from my heart. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, and some projects I can't do that with. Some projects that are pitched to me, I think are cool. I'm down to do them, but like, 
I just think it's fun. I don't have any like passion, passionate, mm-hmm. say, which is harder to pitch. Yeah. Because now I got to go into like my mental brain and yeah. figure it yeah. out. Right? Yeah. So what was it that allows you to get your representation? Was it after bad rap? Was there some milestone that happened that was like, oh, this was the thing that did it for me? Yeah, it was after bad rap that I got management. They just reached out to me. Uh, mm-hmm. It was called Black Box Management. And at the time, they had, uh, their film that they had done was a documentary called Blackfish, which mm-hmm. won, I think, might have won the Oscar. Um, and uh, I was like, yeah, management. I don't, come on, let's do it. Right. <laughs> right? right. And I, I actually had to learn a lot about what management does, mm-hmm. um, how they manage your career. Mm-hmm. And then after I had management, uh, when I pitched Dreamland mm-hmm. and it got, um, my management has contacts as well. They also have contacts. They're not right. as, as powerful as agents, but right. management, they know people. Um, they sent it out to Spring Hill, which is LeBron James company. Mm-hmm. LeBron James company really loved Dreamland, the Dreamland concept. Mm-hmm. They work with WME. It's all connections. They work yeah. with WME and they were like, oh, who's this girl who pitched you this really cool idea? We'd like to talk with her. Oh, she did bad rap too. Cool. Yeah. We've heard of her. She knows Aquafina. Great. And then on that general yeah. WME, I happened to have another idea that mm-hmm. I was passionate about. Yeah. On the back burner. Pitched it to them. They were like, boom, let's do it. Would you yeah. like, can we, can we also represent you? Yeah. Great. Um, so it was just like, you know, climbing the yeah, yeah. the ladder of it. So yeah, that's yeah. how it happened. But I also had shit. I also like had, I had stuff. I had, I had tangible stuff that they could see that mm-hmm. I could send them and say, this is what I did. Here's where it showed. Here's the awards it won. Right. Boom. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So we've, we've talked about bad rap a few times. Let's, let's get into like the origin of that and then into dreamland. So you know, I originally met you a few years ago, shortly after, I think it was the year that Bat Rep came out. And like you said, it was this documentary where you followed four Asian rappers. Uh, tell us a little bit about like, because I always love the story behind this. So you told me a few times, but it's never been on this show. How you, you ran a K-pop site and somehow yeah. that led to you wanting to do this documentary. Tell me about that. <laughs> I, when I, uh, what, um, let me I, just say, I think, Salimi, you need to pitch a show about a black woman who runs a K-pop site. I did. I did that already. Oh, you did. And, and it got it got really far, and then um, it's in the. I, I'll, I'll, it's on the back burner. That's All right. there. It's hey, there. that's cool. That's cool. Um, anyway, thank you for saying that. Yeah, um, for sure. Yeah, I ran a K-pop website called theoneshots.com. Yeah. Basically, I really loved K-pop. Um, and I had a team of people who were writing articles and, and um, tweeting and stuff. And um, I would I just loved K-pop music at the time. It was just mm-hmm. different. And the vibe was there. Nobody knew about it. Um, and the the fandom was so fun. Mm-hmm. It was the fandom that I loved. And it was a fandom of like black girl K-pop fans that was like really cool. Like Interesting. I, I have I have friends, black and white, to this day, I have friends from K-pop that like. I'm still friends with to this. I will always be, I will go to their weddings and funerals right. and babies, all that. And so from there, when I, you know, I was coming up with my thesis when I was in grad school and I wanted it to be about K-pop, uh, a documentary about K-pop. But at that time, the K-pop world was very, um, uh, they just were not penetrable. They would not mm-hmm. email 
they wouldn't they didn't do interviews for anybody right. I'm talking big small anybody and um at the time a friend of mine who helped me build the K- my k-pop website had sent me an article in double xl magazine that had a k-pop artist in it named g dragon and i mm-hmm. was just like why are these two worlds coming together? Mm-hmm. Why is there this guy, K-pop guy in double XL? And I reached out to the guy who wrote the article, who was this Korean guy who happened to manage a bunch of uh, Korean artists or who ma- managed a Korean artist and know a bunch of Korean hip hop artists right. that I knew as well. I knew of, he just knew all of them personally. Right. So anyway, it, it, K-pop, I was just like, you know what? I could do a story about music and race that I am more passionate about. I know rap, I know K-pop, but uh, people think that Asians are K-pop. But yeah. what if they're rap? What if they're actually rap, right? Yeah. And so it was um, that sort of, that's a long, super long-winded way of saying that's how it sort of came to be. And all, every all the pieces came together. There had never been a documentary about Asian rappers, mm-hmm. ever. So I knew all the Asian rappers that I reached out to were going to be excited to do it i you know mm-hmm. we got Jin. we literally got Jin, who is at that point that was the only asian rapper people knew mm-hmm. you know in our film and Jin at that point had moved to china and was a huge megastar in china not even for rap but for acting he was like the equivalent wow. of an oscar winner in, yeah. in in china and like came back to do my little film you wow. know what i mean that's cool so so bad rap was about um four rappers aquafina dumbfounded lyrics and Rex Dizzy. And people at the time didn't know that, don't, don't know that Aquafina was a rapper before she is what yeah. she now a globe, you know, golden globe winner, Oscar. Not, I don't know if she's Oscar nominated, but you know, that, that whole kind of thing. And um, it was just like a little thesis. They let me follow them and do whatever. And they said whatever to me because who was this? Right. Right. These were four rappers who were friends who were trying to make it big. And at the time, Dumbfounded was the guy out from Los Angeles, California, the guy of like K-Town. He was the Asian rapper that people looked up to. Right. The thread that sort of held these other characters together. And then you find out that he does not feel like he's going to make it. Hmm. And so it's a story was about these friends and these people but also uh, through them, you find out all the challenges that they face. Aquafina, obviously, uh, facing the challenge of being a, a woman, a small, a a, a woman uh, in rap, an Asian woman, um, and uh, who was also looked down on by her a- Asian brothers, right, right, for being a gimmick. Lo and yeah. behold, she becomes the most popular and successful one out of all of them, right? right. Um, so yeah, it did well. It did Tribeca, and then it was on Netflix for a couple of years, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. When it got to Netflix, was it like they came out? Did you pitch it to Netflix? Like, did someone represent it? Did they say, "Oh, this looks cool. I want to get this on Netflix"? So Bad Rap did a way different trajectory than my uh, path than my other films. Yeah. Bad Rap was my first film, and it got into a bunch of festivals, mm-hmm. right? So it did South by South. What it got into, like. All these festivals, what they don't tell you is that you can only choose one to premiere at, right? So, uh, right, right. Uh, so if you, I got into like three big festivals that I wanted to, and I could only, I can only do Tribeca, but I was really happy about doing Tribeca. It was in, it's in New York. All our friends, family, the the news, everything was there. Right. So we did, when you go to a film festival, um, you have to get a um, a sales agent. A mm-hmm. sales agent helps to get Netflix and 
uh, YouTube and everybody to sit down and watch your film. Mm -hmm. And so uh, you'll have a, they have press screenings and then they have, um, I think it's, I don't know if it's just press screenings or if it's, they also have like agent screenings or something Mm -hmm. um, where these, you know, Netflixes uh, can watch your movie and decide whether or not they want it. Mm-hmm. Right. And then at the end of the day, I get a list uh, from my sales agent of all the people who watched my film and all the ones that are interested and all the ones who outright don't want it. Netflix originals outright didn't want it. Right. So and so outright didn't want it. But here are the ones that want here are their, their what they're willing to give. Um, and we ultimately went with Netflix licensing, which mm-hmm. is just Netflix. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, they license it for three years and they give you this amount of money and you right. have to pay for subtitles and here's the deal. Right. right. So th- that's, that's how it works. That's how it worked with bad rap was through the festival circuit. Mm-hmm. Now, normally a documentary would have got bought up by a distributor first. A distributor is like Magnolia, Sony. Right. Right. Um, ours went directly through Netflix, which was actually a pain because you need a distributor to be able to put your movie on iTunes and all these other things. Now we were like, we were already at Netflix and we're begging for a distributor. Right. (laughs) Right. Which is really, really strange. It wasn't the greatest experience, but. Yeah, it seems odd. It seems odd that if you'd have something on Netflix, that would be hard to get a distributor. Yes, exactly. Why is that? Um, I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a good thing that we didn't have to have the middleman because the middleman, if, if we did have a distributor, we have to pay them $50,000, which we ended up having to do just a fee. You know right. what I mean? Yeah. I'd rather just go to Netflix. But if we just go to Netflix, that means our stuff won't be available. Our, we don't we haven't distributed it anywhere else. iTunes does not allow anything to be on there without a distributor. Right. Right. Um, so th- that kind of thing. Got it. Got it. Got it. Uh, does it have a distributor now? Yeah, it's called Film Rise. Film Rise. All right, cool, cool. So they get it out in all the different places. Uh, mm-hmm. So then, you know, the other film that you know I wanted to talk to you about before we lose you is uh, Dreamland. It came out at the hundredth anniversary of Black Wall Street. Tell us a little bit about that because I think that's something that is. It, it's so funny every time I talk about Black Wall Street. You know, so many people discovered and learned about it from HBO's. Uh, the Watchmen, because it opened with that, and it, it's just, I don't know, it, it's a it's an interesting commentary on the American educational system that something that profound that happened in this country, most people, including myself, shamelessly to admit, learned about it from watching an HBO miniseries about a giant blue guy. Uh, it was oh, that's good. kind of a spoiler, I guess. <laughs> that Dr. Manhattan's in it. But hey, it's if you're a fan of the show, though. It is, oh, man, it's amazing. Anyway, go ahead. What's your documentary about? The Dreamland, The Burning of Black Wall Street, is about, yes, uh, the, the, the burning of Black Wall Street, which happened in 1921, 100, more than 100 years ago, where um, white people burned down a community of a prosperous Black community because of jealousy, because of such and such, uh, but really because of a catalyst, an incident that happened between a Black boy and a white girl. On an elevator, um, right? Or something. On like an elevator, right? So um, this is a story. It's not the only time that this has happened in history. It's happened a lot of places. Yeah. Oklahoma, Tulsa, Oklahoma is just um, a very interesting place in itself because they had an oil boom 
uh, that made them one of the richest places in in, in the world. Forget America, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and Oklahoma had the most black townships of all. Like it had like a mm-hmm. hundred and something all black places, which you didn't have uh, anywhere else, right? And so when you hear the story, anytime I have ever heard about the story of Black Wall Street, which uh, I didn't hear until I got to college, took a class, learned, you know, about black people, you know, very specifically learned about it. Um, When you hear about it, it is about the destruction of this place. It's the sadness and it's this tragedy. And that's all I've heard about it. Mm. But when I did learn about Black Wall Street before in college in a book, and I can't remember the name of the book, it was almost like this cultural study about this place that I never knew could exist, which was, you know, there was just these black people going to church, going to um, the, their, their debutante balls. Um, they had their confectionaries, their mm-hmm. ice cream shops. And it was just like, cool. Like, and I, I remember reading this stuff and being like, whoa, what is this place? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is what I wanted to bring to life is this, like I say, the Black Gatsby. We hear mm-hmm. about uh, his 1920s roaring, roaring America, and we only see white people. We see the great Gatsby, but, but the Black Gatsby is never something that we see. And that's right. what I want to tap, to tap into the beauty and the dream. And Dreamland is also the name of a theater that existed in Greenwood, Tulsa. Mm. Okay. Um, it was called the Dreamland Theater. You'll also see that in The Watchmen. That's where a lot of black people hid and were protected from the white rioters outside. Wow. So that is how I thought about it. And we used um, animation. Mm-hmm. We, I, wanted way, I wanted way more. I mm-hmm. wanted a lot more and I wanted more illustrated. But I think it did, you know, it did the trick. It was my first time working with animation. But um, to just to reimagine what it could have been. Uh, and talking with the people who are still there, the um, uh, descendants, mm-hmm. um, the fact that there are still three survivors left and none of them have ever received reparations. Everybody, everybody received some, you know, monuments and like speeches and plaques and but no one has received a dime of wow. money. Yeah. And it was a humbling experience. Yeah, no, I bet. And when you're making a film like that, how like how are you? envisioning are parts of it written do you have like images in your mind in terms of like what you want to shoot and how you want to shoot it are you in the editing room yeah i will putting it all together you know i would i would i would first would take a bunch of images from like that time and i would know it would notice that there was a lot of uh uh uh, what do they call it decotage or art deco art deco Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. The 1920s art deco. So I know, OK, I want to use that art deco in whatever I'm doing, whether it's the lower right. thirds or whatever. So that's my my foundation. So whenever I see art deco and if I can place somebody in an interview behind some art, I know I'll I'll use that. I know I want it to be beautiful because mm-hmm. that's the, the I want black people to look beautiful. So anyway, I can make us look beautiful mm-hmm. um, in, in the shot. Uh, if we can do a portrait in the film, we had these uh, portraits where we asked people in the community to come down and get their pictures taken and also do like a two minute interview with us. These are like mm-hmm. vignettes where they just say like, you know, I love living in Tulsa. It's crazy out here, whatever it is that they say, or, you know, they bombed us and they left us here for a hundred years. Mm-hmm. Let them say that. Uh, and, and it's ugly and it's beautiful, but it's true. So just like that, that's sometimes, you know, it, but sometimes it all comes together in the process. And so 
which is you asked the question about the new docs versus the old docs. The new docs are impatient. They don't allow for filmmakers who know that you need to take time for some certain things to happen. They don't allow mm-hmm. us to do that. We need to just hurry up, go right. in and out, which is like not fun, you yeah. know? Yeah. So currently, like, where are people able to see it now, Dreamland? That's a great <laughs> question. So, so Dreamland was supposed to be on CNN and then HBO Max, right? I have a big beef with this. And then so... Uh, I've been asking, when is it going to be on HBO Max? It's not oh, available. Sure. On, it's not available on CNN. You can't find it. You cannot find Dreamland after it aired twice. Where did it air when it originally aired? It, it aired on CNN. Oh, okay. Um, okay. You to catch it live. You can't okay. catch it on. You can't catch it on demand. And so I think what the idea is, they're going to re-release it for uh, Black History Month. Oh. Here, which I have a big, I have a big beef with because I just. I just hate, I have so many things to say about that, but so I think that's what they're going to do. You can catch on HBO Max. Tell me one thing you have to say about that. Um, I think that anytime uh, um, we use black content for black history month, it just limits black, uh, black like, creation. This and, is the only month you're allowed <laughs> to do anything. You know, is it February yet? Is it February? You know, I'm get sorry. your black content this time of the year. It's before it runs out. <laughs> yeah. So um, do you know for sure? Because I want to see it. I don't know for sure. I don't know okay, for sure. Okay, I hope so. Um, what would be your advice for a documentarian today who's looking to make it? You know, I actually think that it's changed so much. I don't know the answer because it's changed so much. Yeah, the way yeah. That, you know, the way that I had to do it was, not had to, was just like I, I just happened to have a ton of content that I just made stupid stuff that I had made. Right, that right. I, know that I had just put together or I was just like I was at all these like premieres uh the movie premieres or at a football Mm -hmm. uh, basketball events or you know I was in the heart I was in LA in Westwood where there were protests there were all types of stuff that I would just go out and just go film and report and like I could build a reel I could build stuff and say point to here's what I did right yeah yeah and like I didn't have to necessarily compete with these DSLR gods that they have now yeah, that yeah. are doing crazy graphics and shit. Like, no, I was just telling, I think, good stories, which I still think holds true today. For sure. If you sure. Have to tell a good story, then you're good. Yeah. So I would say have a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. Have a place where people can see it, where people can just click on the link. Have a lot of that stuff be good. Yeah. Some of it can be shit to show the, the progression. Mm-hmm. Um, and then make a film that gets into a festival. So you still believe in like the the festival circuit? See, the reason I can't even answer that is because I'm and my movie didn't come out in COVID. Yeah, yeah. You know, it didn't right. come out in COVID time. I moved my films come out pre COVID, or I made my film. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I don't know the answer, and mm-hmm. I, 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 you know, like just like for example, like I'm my only big budget films that I've made have been uh, remote, mm-hmm. right? So like, I don't even know what it's like to be in a, you know, I can't, so I can't answer that question, but I yeah. can tell you how to do a remote film. I can tell you how to do a remote film. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's just changing so quickly. Yeah. Yeah. I might have to have you back to talk about how to do a remote yeah. film. What's, yeah. what's the number one thing you've learned from doing a remote film, from doing films remotely? Um... I'm trying to separate what's the number one thing I've learned about making films and what's there remotely. Yeah. Remotely yeah. is that you need a room. I always needed a, I should have 
had a room where people could always click on to know, hey, if anybody needs to talk, like we're in this room or like, here's the room to jump into just to see each other. And by room, you mean uh, like a Zoom room. Like uh, sorry, a Zoom. yes, a Zoom room. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. Like a Zoom room, uh, an Evercast. And now I know the technology to get us all in one place. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in real life, I would have a card, yeah. with a bunch of cards and put them on a wall. We can't do that. And we'd all look at it and touch it. And we can't do that. So I have to find the technology that emulate that uh, mimics that. Mm-hmm. So I'm learning how to make us all feel like we're in a war room together. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Hey, well, it's always great talking to you. Man. You always inspire me. Is there anyone who inspires you? Like when you think about, and not necessarily a filmmaker, but an artist who inspires you in the work that you do or inspires you as an artist inspires i would say like melina mitsukis who does like i think she shoots some of insecure but also i like executive producer on that too yeah she's an executive producer on that uh what i liked i followed her a while back when she was in college Mm -hmm. and she like is like a couple i think she's like a like maybe five years older than i am i think so she's just you know different generation but camera generation than i am yeah yeah um and so like I remember watching an interview with her years back from when she was in college and she was doing the same thing that I was doing, which is just yeah. like, I don't know, just tried this and uh, tried that. And, right, uh, right. and so I look at her and I say, Oh, wow. You know, she had the courage to, to make mistakes and she's, ne- you know, now look at her and she's doing really cool things. Mm-hmm. Um, that inspires me when I see, when I see her, um, mm-hmm. hero Mirai who does mm-hmm. Donald Glover's. Yeah. I was uh, going to say he's a director for Donald Glover. For, uh, for, Atlanta, for Atlanta, but why he inspires me because he also did Donald Glover's music videos. He'd only ever done music videos right? Um, before Donald was like, hey, can you do Atlanta too? And he's like, okay, I've never done that before, but I'll try, yeah, right? Yeah. And Atlanta looks beautiful. It looks like a music video, mm-hmm. right? And like, you know, if I ever did TV, I know the, the documentary ticks, maybe my shit looks like a documentary, you know? Mm-hmm. It inspires me um, that I can jump into television, film and television too. Yeah. Yeah. What's one guilty pleasure that you have? Um, right off the top of my head, my, my partner and I, we were watching Married at First Sight, <laughs> which is <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, which is like on par with 90 Day. Yeah. Beyonce. Right, 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 right. Uh, well, again, thanks for coming on. I love what you're doing. I can't wait to I can't wait for Black History Month to happen. <laughs> uh, actually, this episode is going to be part of Black History Month. <laughs> I've moved on to Juneteenth. I've moved on. <laughs> That's when my book is going to come out. Well, it comes out in May, but we're going to like promote it around really? Juneteenth. I, yeah. I, I love a May-June black thing. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm in that. Yeah, yeah. I want to give a huge thanks to Salima for coming on the show. You can find links to her work on the uh, show notes for this episode as well as the blog post for this episode at ProVideoCoalition.com. Frosty 180 is a production of Blade Runner Media and it's part of Pro Video Coalition's Art of the Frame podcast series. This episode was produced, written, and hosted by yours truly, Ron Dawson. Editing and mixing by Maria Passingham. You can follow me on Twitter at Blade Runner. That's Runner with an O. And you can follow me on Instagram at Blurred Runner. You can follow Pro Video Coalition on Twitter at Simply Pro Video. That's it for now. Until next time, remember, if the story sucks, I don't care what you shot it with or cut it on. See you in two weeks.